Hello, you're listening to the Pipsqueak Podcast, your one-stop shop to anything and everything involving Full Metal Alchemist. This is your host, Alex, and... Your host, Naria. And, uh, yeah, today we are going to not only tell you a little about ourselves, a little bit, the sh- a little bit about the show, but also... We are going to be actually covering some content. Episodes of Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood 1 through 3. Tongue twister though. Just a little. So we'll start by introducing ourselves a little. Um, Naria, why don't you start with you? Well, my name is Naria. I'm a neurotic podcaster extraordinaire and an actress. Uh, you might get that from some of my very silly sound effects that I am want to do. Um, beyond that, my day job is terrible and in customer service. And I am totally dedicated to Fullmetal Alchemist to the point that my final paper in university was all about Roy Mustang. It's true. Well then, while I am not from a background of customer service... I am ju- I am probably just as dedicated to the Full Metal cause. Uh, I've been a, a fan ever since the show debuted. What else? Th- what else is there to say? He's neurotic too. <laughs> I guess so. Yes, that's a good way of saying it. So yes, what can we? Ex- what can you expect from this show? Uh, for one, th- uh, that. One thing that I'm particularly looking forward to is to observe these uh, episodes um, in an in-depth, close reading form for those who haven't actually seen this, well, who haven't seen the series, well, by all means, welcome, but you should probably watch it before uh, listening to us. But at the same time, we will be including a synopsis, which you can watch vicariously through our discussions while you're doing more important things as well um we'll also be discussing the dichotomy between its enjoyability and the depth required or the depth in which is explored in uh the show one thing that particularly strikes me quite well is it's the themes it crosses and how well it portrays it um this both extends to brotherhood its associated movie, as well as the original Full Metal Alchemist uh, series, in which, for clarification's point, we will be um, per, uh, discussing it as OG. Yes. So, for differentiation's sake, Brotherhood will be Brotherhood. Full Metal Alchemist: The Animated Series, two thousand five, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or 2004. It, oh, it was before 2004. Early 2000s. Early 2000s will be considered OG. And while Alex takes his job very seriously, as much as I love FMA, I'm going to shoot the shit. Oh. <laughs> yes. Um, I, too, will attempt to shoot the shit. But I am not as good as shooting shit as Judith is. <laughs> Naria, Yes. So, what we aren't 
we are not internet screaming idiots, um, despite what Naria does online. <laughs> um, but we are very. But that is not something that we are going to be covering. We aren't going to be a this anime sucks review team. Uh, we will try to maintain some kind of critical clarity on the media that we discuss. And even after the series, both either series are covered, uh, we will probably continue on to something else we haven't decided yet. But we'll let you know. Um, in terms of our current format, we will be covering for the first season, uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, its associated movie, and for the second season, the original series, OG, and its films. This should, as scheduled here, because I absolutely love Excel, I am that boring. I told you guys, neurotic. Just a little. That should keep us occupied till 2018. If you guys are still with us by then, well, hopefully we'll be able to find something else to occupy our time. And if you're asleep that long, you might want to pay attention in class. Just a little. <laughs> Jeez. But yes, on to the actual topic, episode one. Full Metal Alchemist. Appropriate title. Appropriate title. Not so sure about the title cards in this one, to be honest. Not really. Uh, we'll get to that when we actually get to the mid-episode, I think. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, do you want to start us off with this first synopsis? Okay, well, the beginning of Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood, episode one, is essentially a huge episode of exposition. Uh, we are in the middle of a huge city, which we later learn to be central. And we meet this host of characters, um, one that's called Isaac McDougall, also known as the Freezer or the Freezing Alchemist, and he's got a nefarious plan to freeze over the city. The Fulmina Alchemist, Edward Elric, and his brother Alphonse are sent in to immobilize him and stop him under the orders of Roy Mustang, the Flame Alchemist, as we will later discover in the same episode. And... There's sort of discussion about the ulterior motives behind the nefarious I will freeze everything plan um, that McDougal has, but it's never quite clarified. There's just some hints of mystery dropped here and there, and the episode kind of ends after having introduced absolutely everybody and dropping a hint as towards further episodes. But it stays pretty vague for the main part other than hemming up who everybody is. So in a sense, uh, this episode is kind of just a vague foreshadow. Like, this episode is entirely focused on vaguely foreshadowing everything while giving us a fairly checklist-esque introduction to each character. Very checklist. So as Naria said, uh, mentioned, we open up at the Capitol. A mysterious stranger runs about, chalking up the place, um who is eventually revealed to be the state alchemist, or ex-state alchemist Isaac McDougal. McDougal. Um, he's tracked and approached by our heroes, Edward and Alphonse. Oh, God, what is wrong with me? 
Edward and Alphonse Elric. McDougall introduces us to the concept of equivalent exchange while ascribing to the crazy face school of... Crazy face. <laughs> facial acting. We'll put it to that. It's rather... Facial animating? Animating, yes. That would actually work better. It's rather clear that he's unhinged. In the, I guess, exchange, a social exchange, McDougal identifies Edward by his automail arm and leg, a defining feature, apparently, of the character, despite in the future he gets... Alphonse is clearly identified later as the full metal alchemist or mistaken to be because you know he's actually made of metal and wearing full body armor that would do it edward himself is a maverick on the edge juxtaposed by his lit younger more responsible brother when and the fact that he looks really short yes bit of a problem with the maverick look here, though, we get McDougall's deal, the general idea of his objective, escaping soon after. His objective being to freeze over Central. We are introduced to Roy Mustang behind a desk, <laughs> chewing out the brothers, in which he is interrupted by Maze Hughes. You guys can't hear this, but right now there's sparkles around my eyes because Roy Mustang was mentioned. I have a thing for the guy, seriously. It's fairly Get in line, obvious. girls. Who's very adamant about not dying. <laughs> the brothers are subsequently invited to dinner. While they dine, McDougal uh, attempts to convince the Crimson Alchemist, Kimley, a.k.a. wannabe Joker or discount Joker. Or Dickface. Dickface <laughs> is a good one, too. Um, but is refused. Uh, well, convince the Crimson Alchemist into joining him, in which he is uh, refused. We will get back to him later. Cut forward a little further, and we're introduced to Armstrong. We catch a glimpse of Mustang facing off against McDougal as well. Notably here, he spares every alchemist he faces off with, which is rather unfair to the normies that he wholeheartedly slaughters, if you ask me. He implements his master plan, which is to effectively bring on a new Ice Age um, for apparently taking out the Fuhrer. The Fuhrer being, of course, the leader of the Amestrian state. Now, for a layman, wouldn't you suspect that that would be a bit overkill to destroy an entire city just to take out one dude? Yes, but the fact that he... That's why he appears so unhinged to the brothers. Because his motive isn't clear. People who know the show and people who know how it ends on upon the rewatch realize that when he suggests, do you know who you're working for? Do you know their plan? There's something really big at hand here and the whole city being frozen over is not the worst plan, all things considered. However... To somebody who has no idea what's going on, it is the absolute most unhinged, supervillain, not really a reason behind it kind of thing to do. And honestly, this leads us into the one thing that this episode does right. Mm. To somebody in the know, we completely understand. Mm -hmm. It's a staple actually very common in Cosmosian literature, or Lovecraftian literature, in which people who have witnessed 
the extra dimensional craziness of, say, Cthulhu, Azathoth, Yogg-Shoggoth, so on and so forth. I love that he knows the names. I know many names. The goat <laughs> of a thousand young! Um, getting back on topic. Anyone who's actually witnessed it and who understands the cosmology understands why there are partic- the people who are aware of it are unhinged. Hmm. A new viewer would simply see the person as unhinged, whereas a person who is familiar with it, with what is going on, as in somebody who has seen OG. And he's telling the truth, even though the truth seems unhinged to people who don't know it. Exactly. We know that he's telling the truth. It's a catch-22. Exactly. So in a sense, they implement that fact quite well. The madman who has looked into the abyss, and the abyss has looked back, in some cases rather literature, lit, uh, literar, uh, literally foreshadowing. With a creepy childlike voice, actually. <laughs> um, but yes, that I find works incredibly well. The only problem is the rest of this episode kind of falls short, and we will continue that once we finish the synopsis here, in which the Edward L. the Ah, the Edward Brothers. Who are they? The Elric <laughs> Brothers. The Edward Brothers are a really fashionable band from England who are going to try and win the Eurovision 2018. Apparently. They lost. <laughs> Already. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. They were quite literally Edward Zick. That, no. I'm going to abandon that joke right there. Uh, the Elric brothers confront him for a second time. Alphonse is exposed for our ple- for our pleasure. Um, of course, revealing nothing. Him being a minor, this is actually quite a problem. He's exposing himself constantly, actually. I know. Um, yeah. Like, seriously, people who watch the show should be arrested for child pornography. <laughs> Definitely. Sadly, he's not that much of a looker. Mm-mm. Not much to look at, seriously. At all. Um, for people who haven't seen the show, there is literally nothing within his suit of armor. Uh, and it's revealed at this point that he's he is invisible. nothing. Oh, no, he's just a... No, uh, obviously, but he's a sentient suit of armor. For yeah. our listeners, of course. We get poor. We get a poorly implemented, if, if you must... We might say ham-fisted flashback... It becomes highly evident that McDougal himself is a broken individual, as if we haven't actually noticed that already, suffering from post-traumatic stress, uh, though his revelation is cut short once he finds Fuhrer King Bradley, and yes, King is literally his first name. I know, he's Fuhrer and King, and his title, when people talk to him, is Your Excellency. Like, overdoing it much? Just a little. (laughs) I mean, the, the mustache does it already. Like, adding Kaiser is about all that's missing. Maybe his... Maybe his favorite band is the Kaiser Chiefs. Or his middle name is Emperor. King Emperor Brandley, Bradley. Bradley. <laughs> what is wrong with me today? Names are not your forte, I suppose. Apparently. I guess I'm just falling short. <laughs> I should hit him with the ruler every time he does a bad pun. You can hit me, just spare the microphone. Oh, I can handle that. Okay. So, Fuhrer King Emperor Kaiser Bradley the <laughs> Fourth 
absolutely punks the freezing alchemist with as with a seriously anime as fuck sword move. Um, it's called drawing a sword. A lot of swords in a single frame. Uh, it's obvious that he moves inhumanly, inhumanly fast. And while in most anime, uh, it would be purely just, oh, he's just moving super fast because anime trope. We will learn later on that this is a this is a diegetic reason. We are meant to see this as something somewhat unnatural. Completely unnatural, Completely really. unnatural. However, again, in a world where we are primarily shown... In a world where we are primarily shown... Alchemy as something as the norm. Is it that much of a stretch to really perceive his movements as abnormal? Well, at a later point... At a later point, uh, Edward does ponder, when did he draw his sword? Meaning that it surprises even the alchemist with keen eyes and an eye for analysis. Definitely. My, the point that I was getting to is, was it better? I, I think it was better to hold that, his abilities off. I mean... What are we achieving by showing off any extra normal abilities now? We have 60-odd episodes to go. Honestly, that's my problem with the entire episode. Um, it reveals too much too soon and kind of spoils some of the really good moments in the later episodes. Um, if you're a beginner with the series and don't know the characters, I'd even say avoid that first episode. Not because it's a bad episode by any means, but because it is very ham-fisted. And some of the great moments that later pop up, some of the jokes and some of the some of the things that just make Full Metal Alchemist Full Metal Alchemist are meant to be discovered at a slower pace. Exactly. And honestly, one breach in that foreshadowing already, or the one of the biggest breaches besides, you know, super anime magical girl King Bradley. <laughs> Uh, Picturing him in a tutu now. Yes. Besides his abilities being uh, shown in literally the first episode, we also get a glimpse of a little red stone that dissipates temporarily. And we get a glimpse, very briefly, just a few seconds. But when the freezing alchemist uses his transmutations, we see a sort of pan down... And under a shock of blonde hair, a man opens his golden eyes. Yep. And they you... close again when the freezer is caught. You heard it first. Saruman lives underneath Central. Central. <laughs> he escaped Hobbit. Well, he escaped Hobbit, uh, the Shire, Hobbiton. Um, he wasn't in Hobbiton. He was in Isengard. No, no. At the end of Lord of the Rings, he tried to take over the Shire. Really? Yeah. Don't remember that. It wasn't that great of a part. But he supposedly died in a hail of bows and arrows. Well, his death in the movie is great, though. Yeah, well... Uh... Impaled on a water wheel, come on. Yeah, that's true. But supposedly his uh, demise was greatly uh, exaggerated. Or the rumors, of his the rumors of his death was greatly exaggerated. When are they not? Mm, true. We get a glimpse of a redstone, some, and as well as some Armstrong and Mustang teamwork 
Riza's ex uh, exasperation as Mustang recklessly gets himself wet. <laughs> and a No, he gets me wet. That's not quite the same thing. <clears throat> and a laughing crimson alchemist. It turns out that Bradley himself is not enthusiastic for the spotlight, letting Mustang take the letting Mustang take the glory. He also has scruple a pro, a thing that he also has personal scruples with. Closing the episode is lust or a lusty looking lady, which we later identify as lust, discussing <laughs> matters of the philosopher's stone and how she had high hopes for McDougal. So, and she ends the episode with the line, it all begins very soon. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, with really that kind of music, and the entire image is flooded in red. So, as if you had filmed it through a red filter, it gives it this creepy, ominous ambiance. Either that, or... It's really hemming it up, that episode. Either that, or could it be that they're already in Lior? Because every time they have that um... red... It looks like the Lior sunset. Good point. That's why I'm here. Oh, screw you. So, what can we say about this episode? Honestly, I find, for what it is, yes, it's an adequate and serviceable episode. But I agree entirely about Narya. Well, about Narya's... Um, ideas involving it it's with Naria's ideas yes with <laughs> i speak good word english style ing language stuff yes i'm the english lit major so i'm the expert in language <laughs> I, i'm also an english lit major oh that's true i forgot exactly well you came after my example uh-huh i've already graduated good point so, yes, honestly, it's adequate, though I agree, I agree entirely with Narya. It feels very unnecessary to cover it, especially with the future episodes that we will be we will be dealing with in just a few seconds. We do get an introduction to all of the characters. Uh, I think it's a bit heavy-handed, actually. Yeah, no, um, it is very heavy-handed. When I mean adequate, I mean... It portrays them okay. Yeah. I mean, you you get them, you, you effectively get their name, you get their quote, or their quirk. Their power. Their power, and then their flaw. Literally in that order. Some of which are a little more subtle than others. Mustang, you get his name, you get his quirk, being the superior officer. You get his power, in which he attempts to use the flame alchemy. He gets wet. Which is, which is yes, I'm mature, guys. I know. And so on and so forth. Hughes. He's Hughes. He loves his family. And he loves his family. I guess you might say that uh, it's a very enviable family. We'll leave it to that. I hate you sometimes. Um, well, Alex is completely right about that, but... They're also kind of heavy-handed in the foreshadowing. For instance, um, the opening shot is actually on the circular city of Central. And you kind of see that the street grid sort of 
goes concentrically around central command. And the shot immediately switches to that of McDougal drawing a transmutation circle, which is about the same size as the city we just saw in the previous frame. And later on in the episode, when he actually activates all his transmutation circles, the entire city becomes a transmutation circle. Foreshadowing much? Yes. For people who have already seen Brotherhood, this definitely calls forward something that happens far later. We won't be touching on that right now, but you can expect us to call forth this episode again. In that sense, I guess you can say how they've planned it all along, but they were writing the, the manga far before they even aired this episode to begin with. So I guess this works as credi like credible foreshadowing for the events to come. At the, at the same time, is it really necessary yeah. uh, for the plot twist to actually be to be critically... I actually would rather not have the plot twists right away. I think that yeah. revealing them too soon cheapens the story a little bit. Exactly. Um, it, it feels very... I, I, again, I don't want to just be that... I don't want to be the, this podcast that shits on these episodes. No, but this, that because... first episode kind of feels like a previously on summary kind exactly. of thing or before just, any of the show has actually aired either that or you know what it actually feels like it feels like a microcosm of everything that we've seen in og the, kind of. the basic ideas of each character the basic theme their shtick and effectively um like their background it's a it is a pilot it's an all-inclusive pilot meant very to much sell so. mm -hmm. a brotherhood to its fans before we actually get to the expanded story which is effectively the retelling of the manga yeah can we just talk about how awesome the opening is the opening yes uh the opening is called again and it's by yui um all capital letters and it is just one of the best anime openings in my opinion and i know that a lot of attack on titan fans will probably disagree with me but the bad german use in attack on titan and me being german means i just cannot condone that opening so yeah again by yui takes it for me i'd have to agree um i haven't seen all that much attack on titan so i'm not going to really comment on its comparison but the opening is very dynamic, the animation is fluid, up what you can expect from an anime opening, but it also captures the emotion, the desperation, but also the sense of connectivity. Mm -hmm. um, this is a free-flowing adventure an emotion of emotional high points and low points, and it captures it incredibly well. Uh, the, the focus on Edward and Alphonse, Edward's arm and leg dissolving into thin air, Alphonse losing his body, and Winry being almost powerless. And being falling, tossed about by the wind. Being tossed about by the wind works incredibly well. It foreshadows their struggles mm -hmm. uh, forward. It also doesn't spoil as much, too, uh, which also works pretty well. The yeah. ending credits captures something very similar. Um, the very end is cute. It's very cute. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually very intentional. Um, it works incredibly well in capturing the innocence of the boys. 
or the innocence lost by the boys, more so by Edward than Alphonse. Yeah, very much so. And, I mean, the way it's animated in the ending credits, it's actually meant to be the boys who have drawn the ending credits. So it's this childish chalk drawing, and at the end you kind of see that the chalk drawing the whole time was drawn by the two boys. Which, in a sense, is them... I'm not going to, like, psychoanalyze this, but... (laughs) Hello, Dr. Freud. They could be living vicariously through these drawings, in a sense. I think it's quite the case, because they do encounter several of the characters, but, for instance, when they encounter the homunculi, nothing happens. They don't get attacked, they don't... I mean, Gluttony is freaking cute in it. Of course. He's just sitting on a rock and has his tongue mauling out. His tongue is kind of freaky in the actual show. Oh, certainly. Um, but yeah, they, they don't want to actually fight anyone. They're no. forced to. No, they're just walking through it. Yeah. That's what they want to do. It's a childlike adventure that is far too mature for the children to actually bear. Yep. So are we done with episode one? I think so, unless we want to mention all the Captain Obvious moments. We could. I mean, one of the big things that is noticeable here is um, the distinct comic book manga-drawn feel that we get. Uh, For instance, when Alphonse gets mistaken for Edward by the freezer, uh, when he goes, I know who you are, you're the full metal alchemist. Then he turns around, points at Alphonse and goes, so it's not you? Uh, And it's the first of many such jokes. Uh, And Ed goes, no, no, that's me. And the answer is, but he's a runt. And the whole time, the animation there is, first of all, in black and white. And second, it's kind of like it was drawn in charcoal. It's got this penned look. It doesn't, it does not look like your typical anime, fluid animation. It looks like they've inserted a slide from a comic book or from a manga in this case. And the same thing happens again when Hughes comes in. Uh, He bursts into Roy's office, ridiculously happy because it's Maze Hughes. And he talks about Roy and he goes, Roy, you're going to have to get promoted next time you come over because this is a really nasty assignment. And Roy gets the annoyed popping vein. And then a thought bubble appears. And thought bubbles aren't all that common in anime. They're very common in manga and comic books. It's... The thing you use when you can't actually voice over something. And uh, it says, here comes that pest. So I think it's very significant that we're using bubbles here to express some of the things the characters think. Definitely. And in some ways, it's certainly more effective than others. Um, In the first couple of episodes, it works, I suppose, in the more action-adventure-oriented events. But... In the next couple of episodes, predominantly in episode two, but especially in episode three, we can see some really negative or some usage of that manga humor that detracts from the events of uh, or the gravitas of these that these scenes are supposed to have mm-hmm. in some ways. Well, and speaking of the manga, this is a part that I find very, very interesting is... Um... 
you'll find there's a lot of focus on the term dog of the military and military dogs and oh you're just a dog a dog on a leash or a dog without its leash and the expression dog will come back again and again and again the analogy is just used a million times and it's very interesting that uh Hiromi Arakawa's first manga was called Stray Dog and had a similar main character concept we're looking at a short character with a braid um the part the character was part dog i believe but we're still looking at someone short super powerful with braided hair you can see the similarities going on and it was a one shot i'm not sure it was published before full metal alchemist or after full metal alchemist got successful but you can see the inspiration there and i think that that's where the this dog obsession comes from in the analogies definitely um, we can actually see a lot of the, the mangaka's uh, influence in how she portrays herself, especially in the manga as well, with her previous projects. Uh, you mentioned something while we while uh, in a previous conversation about another title that she uh, uh, that she had, in which the maiden character was a person from a dairy farm. Oh yeah, um, that's actually her own kind of biographical little comic strip called the Cow- the Cowshed Diaries, and it's less of a typical manga with a run through story, and it's more one strip after another of this tiny little cow with glasses, which represents uh, Arakawa-san herself, and um, how she goes through life in Tokyo as a mangaka freaking out at the prices of produce that in the countryside in Hokkaido cost absolutely nothing because she grows her own daikon kind of thing. So it's it's quite amusing, it's really adorable, and yeah, you can... The relationship between Edward and Milk and the usage of cows in the anime is very much self-referencing to the author. Definitely, and the reason why I bring this up as well is anyone who actually picks up the manga uh, the mangaka, or the author, the cartoonist, uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term mangaka, um, often will depict herself as a cow, as an illustrator cow person who just kind of pops in, especially in the after panels of Moo. each. Yes, Moo. So moving on to episode two. Yes. So we open up with what will be a mainstay of the series. Each episode is covered, or each episode starts with an explanation on alchemy, the concept of equivalent exchange. With a very much in a world voice. Yes, very much so. Uh, It's just a kind of, it's not described by a character in particular, just a trailer voiced character who kind of just talks at us uh, with a bunch of heavy handed uh, religious symbolism we have the Seth the, the Sethroth um, presented you have um, the Ouroboros uh, no, not, no not the Ouroboros the infinity the, sign the infinity sign the Ouroboros does appear but not in that first yes. thing you do see the Kabbalah um, yeah the whole Kabbalah the tree of life tree yeah and some mysterious red rocks that we will be returning to. And some weird, um, I think it's called the Vitruvian Man? Yes, the, a, a take on the Vitruvian Man. Yeah. Yes. So, the episode proper 
after our explanation uh, begins with our heroes, the Elric brothers, I actually said it right this time, on a train, going somewhere. We get another flashback. Big flashback. Most of the episode flashback. The episode itself, called The First Day. Yes. Yes. It's effectively a backsplash backstory uh, where we get the context and um, introduction to their motivations. Whereabouts? First of all, we get the answer to where their parents are. Their mom died rather early. We only get a few split seconds seeing her before she dies of... A disease. Implied very... Very well to be tuberculosis. No, actually, it's not in this one. No? Mm-mm. Oh, wait. She isn't. Uh... They just imply disease. You have a focus on the house and you're told that she died of a disease. That's it. Plague. It's in OG. Yeah. That she coughs on blood. Yep. And she actually, you know, has some interactions with her sons while she's sick. Yeah, uh, she doesn't really talk much. Um. She says, ooh, you're doing alchemy, and that's about it. And then, um, mom goes bye-bye. Uh, father wasn't, their father aren't, uh, is not there. He is not present at all. Um, we have a scene of Edward crying at his mother's grave. Well, Uh, even before that, there's a lot of resentment from Edward towards his father, because when he learns alchemy and is scribbling on the floor, according to his mother, in his father's office... And she asks him if her father taught him that. Uh, his father taught him that, that. And he goes, how could he? He's never there. That is true. And this only increases Edward's resentment even more. He has a fuck you dad uh, moment at mm-hmm. his mother's grave. And thus we are provided their motivation for committing the seemingly heaviest taboo to get mommy dearest back. And to potentially attract their father back as well. And it's... it's said very clearly in that um, in that narrator introduction that it is the ultimate sin. It's the ultimate taboo that full, that fullmetal alchemists, that alchemists are forbidden to do. Literally only just fullmetal alchemists, just metal alchemists. Um, <laughs> are, are okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so it's, it's expressly forbidden for any alchemist to attempt um, as the as the um, narrator says for what could equal the value of a human soul. And we'll find out that that's a pretty big deal, actually. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, at the same time, uh, we are introduced to Winry, who looks on, caring, though rather powerless at the moment, in dealing with the boy's grief. They truly hyper-focus on their studies, foreshadowing their teacher by just a very quick, well, quick glimpse of... A, just a single frame of her looking stern, as always. Mm-hmm. And the links... And voiceover saying we found ourselves a teacher. Exactly. Uh, more will be expanded that, for that in the future. And the links, they will go once they put their minds to something. There's also a brief moment with Edward and his milk problem. Exactly. Um, Pinaco actually tells Edward to drink his milk, or otherwise he'll be short forever. And this has the both of them, because Pinaco is a very, very short woman as well. Just has them throwing insults at each other. Um, <laughs> Edward says something along the lines of sawed-off mini-hag. And then we get half-pint midget and subatomic shrimp. And it's just a back-and-forth of these short jokes. 
then yelling at each other. Generally very unpleasant if you were a dinner guest. Just a little. Um, yeah, I'm just going to take this dinner and uh, eat in the other room. See you guys later. <laughs> so, pretty much, uh, aside from that, you can smell the hubris coming right from the screen, and they try to bake a human-shaped cake. And it's it's that hubris that keeps coming back, and they even say it themselves, the arrogance of the alchemist is a big deal here. Definitely. Um, and again, we're, we are called back to that forbidden knowledge covered by Lovecraft. Um, I should have probably stated I am a Lovecraft fanboy in the concepts, not so much as his style of writing uh, or the rapid racism that actually presides on his work. Getting back to the uh, digressing here. Um, so they accidentally summon Yogshagosh. <laughs> no, they don't. But um, <laughs> right before they actually slap the ingredients together, and that, that actually I think is a really interesting uh, bit. The first time we're exposed to Edward reading the ingredients, uh, water, 35 grams, etc. The first time we're exposed to it is when he, as a child, is reading this. We don't see him physically read it. We just hear his voice reading it off. You see a focus on the house and this really ominous red-eyed crow. Um, yeah, that's so bit, you know uh... something bad is going to happen. Like, it's it's uh, very much Edgar Allan Poe and Nevermore going on Swalk. for a minute there. Yeah, more or less. Um, but then you, you have him in this ominous setting reading the ingredients... Very in a very carefree, like arrogant kid of I can do this. Like I'm gonna nail this oral presentation and the show and tell, and I'm gonna bring my mom back from the dead. Because clearly that's how it works. And then he just goes now from for a little bit of soul data, and he pricks his finger and his brother's finger, and they put each a drop of blood on top of the pile and hope for the best. <sighs> Bad choice, boys. So we get our major, uh, our first major hint that alchemy really isn't just arbitrary wizardry. Edward himself gets curb stomped with knowledge and is charged a limb for it. Yeah. What charges him that limb is never truly revealed. All we see is a magnificent door, just absolutely beautiful. Covered and, in Kabbalah. Covered in Kabbalah. And a small smiling child thing seemingly small child thing yes with, with shifting voices and very white teeth yes and someone who actually has seen the og will recognize the voices and the teeth yes lots of teeth but the voices um i will just mention envy um we also get a moment where this character that calls itself truth or God, etc., just walks directly up to Edward's face. And suddenly this character that seemed rather small is massive and its head is bigger than Edward's shoulders. Like, there's a well, lot going on with this character that can have many names. It can also have many forms, probably. Definitely. We'll get back to that line in a bit. Uh, that will be actually be my line of this particular episode, but we'll get back to reading it. Uh, so, he makes a bargain, discovering that his brother, Edward makes a bargain, sorry, discovering that his brother is entirely missing, and sac he just sacrifices then another limb to bring him back, or at least his soul. But interestingly enough, he does not make that decision right away. Yes. 
he hears the sounds coming from the human cake, as you called it, that they tried to make. Yep. And it's this creepy gasping sounds and this rattling and, you know, typical haunted house kind of sounds. It's a Cronenberg creature. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so when he sees this thing that's this upside down mangled human being with an open rib cage and dripping blood everywhere. Tough guys. Uh, yeah, it's it's really hot. Um, he Lots he, of heavy breathing. Yes. Yes. But that makes him freak out. Mm-hmm. Understandably so. The kid's 11. Um, but interestingly to me is he doesn't Im- he doesn't immediately look for his brother and realize that he's gone. His first instinct is, did it work? Which goes back to that alchemist's arrogance. If it had worked, would he care about losing his brother? Oh, certainly. Um, that's an act- a great question, actually. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, his actions in the future could possibly point to, yes, he would, but... At the same but time, he's matured could, by that time. He's matured, and he could also be acting through guilt. I think he's definitely he's acting a lot through guilt because yes. his desire is only ever to bring Alphonse back. He does not give a shit about his own leg. Exactly. So, this explains why the armor is effectively empty in the last episode. Yes, and because Edward says that Al Alphonse is his little brother. He's all he's got. If he had succeeded. At the human transmutation, Alphonse would not be all he's got. Exactly. And at the same time, if he had succeeded, he could probably replicate it to bring Al back too. Yes, quite possibly, actually. No big D. Take take my entire family. I could bring them back. No problem. Playing God much, boys? Just a little. Yeah. That totally doesn't make anything... Uh, that, that Bad things don't come after that. No, probably not. And then we get to my favorite part of flashback. Oh, yes. It's also revealed. Roy comes into the scene. So, which... but, but mm. first, we cut to present day. Where Roy Mustang is in the scene. Which yes. is very important. Yes, he is. All the fangirls are happy. Um... He accepts a file on McDougal. Yes. And we, are dis- and we discover that McDougal is not only using his Amestrian alchemy, but he's using something called Xingyi's alchemy. Alka-history. Not alchemy, but alka-history. And Roy has no clue what it is. Exactly. Also, Hughes teases Roy that next time he shows up in Central, which means Roy is not stationed in Central, he better have made Brigadier General. So we realize that there's kind of a relationship with regards to their ranks and their friendship going on, uh, for those who aren't familiar with them. And Hughes asks Roy if he's going to tell, take care of the Elric boys. And this is a line that I particularly like. Roy says, I'm their commanding officer, not their father. Which is kind of ironic, because in the end, he's a greater father figure than any father they've actually had. Exactly. And I think that he is trying to... T- I think he's more saying that for his own benefit rather yeah i think he's trying to assure himself that he's not trying to step in as their father exactly i agree and again this is justified by later actions one particularly Mm. heart-wrenching speech when he corners them far in the future yeah yes (laughs) cut to the past the next day as young roy post (laughs) cronenberg discovers 
a bloody stain on the floor. In the middle of a massive transmutation circle. His outrage there. Because he kind of flips... He kind of flips... It's well-deserved. It is. But when he sees it, the first thing he says, what the hell happened here? He sort of knows, obviously. But it's... It's this outrage about somebody even trying this. It's so much more telling about how much a taboo it is than any of the narration that came across before. That freak out of this young man, this young, very skilled alchemist. This 11-year-old. Yeah. But but this this man seeing that... Like, and Roy at this point is a star alchemist and, um, you know, war hero. Uh, he's the hero of the East, as they called him. Um, so Roy Mustang freaking out about this bloodstain on the floor, which could be anything, really tells you how much of a taboo this is. Because as soon as he can tell what it is, he's completely enraged about it. Oh, of course. So effectively, he confronts the brothers and the brothers, or at least Alphonse being the only of the two that is actually capable of human language at this point, apologizes over and over again, sobbing, almost. Yes, but it's not that Alf- uh, that Edward is not capable of no, human he's... language. He's just sitting kind of catatonic in a wheelchair. Yes. In shock, I suppose, would be the best way of actually putting it. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. No, just a little. And by all means, I'd have to say that this these interactions are the high, the emotional high point. As bombastic as the doorway, as the actual rich, the alchemic ritual, and the tragedy of losing in-event reactions as there are, um, with the bombastic soundtrack and all that, the actual dialogue and delivery mm-hmm. in, the, in the interactions between Roy, Alphonse, and just in a few seconds, Winley and Riza yes. are probably the best in the in the, just this episode and the previous. And Travis Willingham, who voices um, Roy Mustang, his delivery in that episode is really spot on. I mean, there are these moments of emotion in his voice that really tell you how first of all, impressed he is, but also how fucking scared he is to realize that children have been able to do this. Horrified. Completely. More or less. Um, And in a way, I think that that big flashback part to the Gates of Truth could have been revealed later. I think that would be more effective. Because Roy's reaction really sells it really sells the taboo part. Honestly, if I were redoing this uh, episode, because, of course, I'm just as arrogant and filled with hubris <laughs> as any Elric would be, if I were to be taking on the burden to redoing this episode, huh? <laughs> I would have honestly started with Mustang's flashback in memory discovering i would have been happy with that that's for sure implementing his flashback first will honestly create a better mystery for the audience yeah its pacing will work better 
the initial shock and awe will actually be increased if we learn later the tragedy of their failure of bringing their mother back and the loss of their limbs. Mm-hmm. The horror of it happening. We don't understand what we're seeing when we're when they're implementing the human. Uh, in, uh, I was about to say instrumentality, <laughs> the 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 human uh, alchemy that they were about to do. Human transmutation. The yeah. human transmutation. But if we are given the reaction before we are actually seeing the ritual, all it, of a sudden we have this increased stigma. It's very interesting because it's true. There's something very pagan and ritualistic in the way they do it, especially with the fact that they use a knife to do the cuts and whatnot. It's reminiscent of the athame. Um, and then the circle, um, the idea of creating circle um, for those who know their pagan rituals, um, it all comes back to actual pagan rites. So More hermetic. Well, yes. I would imagine. But it... There are certain pagan rites that do reflect this, and yes. certain uh, pagans do abide by the Kabbalah. And in the books, this is a tiny detail that I noticed, but in the books that they're studying, in their father's study, there are several Kabbalah symbols and several um, pagan imagery as well. Well, I mean, um, if we actually discuss the historical context of alchemy... Um... We're going to be sitting here a long time. <laughs> yes, but um, the the Kabbalah was used in Elizabethan era. Elizabethan, yeah. Yes, uh, alchemy um, in terms of the creation of the um, Enochian language. Well, not just that. The homunculus dates back to that. Exactly. The mythology of the homunculus dates back to Elizabethan and Jacobian alchemy. There you go. And the homunculus back then was just a tiny man who would feed off the alchemist's blood. Which, again... Is weird and freaky. Why would anybody want to do that? But, yeah. Like other things that we will be encountering far later on in the series. Indeed. Indeed. Riza and Winry actually meet for the first time. And it's the first time we're probably introduced to their characters. Because in the first episode, when we see Riza... Her name is not mentioned. Exactly. Establishing and contrasting both characters quite effectively in their interactions. I'm saying interaction way too often. I should probably have a thesaurus next to me. <laughs> we get a hint of Winry's story through their dialogue. Lieutenant Riza is asked, Have you ever had to shoot anyone? I hate soldiers. Are you here to take Edward and Alphonse away from us? And Riza responds that if they decide to go, it will be their choice. She makes it very clear that nobody's forcing the boys. It is entirely their choice. And that freedom of choice and where it leads them is very interesting. Also, she will reply about having to shoot at somebody. She says that, yes, she has had to because there's someone she needs to protect. I find it actually kind of uh, funny how the dialogue, um, how Riza's dialogue is picked up or picks up in mid-sentence or continues Mustang's sentence as they're almost speaking simultaneously. Um, it, I get the impression that Riza has walked in on Mustang 
rehearsing his speech at some point. What? Why? <laughs> well, like, I mean, when you say I, walked in on Mustang, there's other things I'm thinking of, because he's a womanizer and famously so. I'm sure that has happened as well. Oh, come on. She would have shot him to death over that. She would have. We never see his legs. He, she could have shot him in the leg at some point. Okay, he doesn't limp. Biological alchemy. He's not a biological alchemist! He could have gone to Shao Tucker. Fuck you. Fuck you. And the Alexander dog you rode in on. <laughs> we aren't there yet. That's next episode. But either way, she kind of continues the sentence, and he ends it. So clearly, she she has heard his dialogue, like this particular these lines before. I, I imagine that he kind of just repurposes um, recruitment speeches every once in a while. Actually, seeing propaganda would be really interesting. A mystery in propaganda of join us now, just Uncle. King wants you? Uncle King Emperor <laughs> Kaiser Chief Bradley Big Man the Third. <laughs> Trump. Trump. Um But regardless, when the two leave, Riza wonders if they of the if the brothers will say yes, in which Mustang promptly replies that he saw fire in those eyes. Yes. Well, actually, that's not exactly what Riza asks. She, Riza says, I've never seen someone so defeated. Yes. And Roy answers with, that's what you saw? No. There was fire in those eyes. Better put. So obviously they said yes. Uh... Edward decides to get automail limbs. Yes. Uh, which, lucky for him, ha ha ha, uh, the house he's in, the Rockbells, they are automail mechanics and specialists. So lucky him, he's in the house of the right people. Um, and he asks how long it will take for his limbs to adjust, or well, for his body to adjust to his new limbs. And Pinaco, the more experienced uh, mechanic, says three years. And Edward, with the aforementioned fire in his eyes, says he'll do it in one. Exactly. More hubris much? He does succeed, though. Uh, cutting back, actually, um, when Mustang and Pinaco were actually talking earlier, yes, uh, Pinaco actually reveals that she found the thing. They found the Cronenberg creature that Edward and Alphonse right. brought right. back, and she killed it herself. How badass is that little old lady? She's extremely badass. She's I mean, a come beast. On. She's friends with Hohenheim. Drinking buddies with Hohenheim. And given the fact that Hohenheim is... Hohenheim of light is... We'll get to that later. Something. Yes. But he can probably drink a fuck ton. And she probably drank him under the table. It just goes to show that Pinaco is probably some sort of immortal demigod. Well, it never gets revealed, the way but this I'm anime, sure she is. Well, I mean, the way this anime treats women is so incredibly well. It's so empowering. Girls, you it, need it, to watch the show. Definitely. Like, um, girls are never the mothers or the lovers or anything. They are women of power in their own right. It's really phenomenal for that. And you see that even Pinaco, who's the old grandmother, 
she fucking stands her ground. <laughs> exactly. And we'll see more. She's in- nobody's granny. Exactly. And we will see more examples of that in the future. Such as the wrench that Winry throws at Edward's head, like, every time. three seconds later, because he has modified her her uh, automail with alchemy. Yes. Uh, we are... We are then uh, enlightened to, one, the fact that Edward can actually create out or use alchemy without a circle. Alphonse. Like teacher, says Alphonse. Like teacher. But Alphonse cannot. Alphonse was never shown the truth. He was never given the curved, stompy information that Edward was given. Which is strange, because the truth says that the reason why Edward could not see the truth all the way to the end is because he didn't pay a high enough toll. How high is that fucking toll? If a whole body does not pay for it. Um, for new readers, the truth is the thing it behind the door that is Call also... Call God the, and the yeah. world and the one and the everything and the you and the... That, that Edward encountered in, you know, the ritual. Yeah, it's, it calls itself the truth. It, it's rather King Bradley-esque in terms of its ego, I guess. Actually, I think it's an even bigger ego. It calls itself God. Yeah, that's true, eh? So, yeah. Uh, Cut forward to the future. Edward is fully recovered. Uh, He receives the state alchemist exam in a very clandestine fashion, alone, and witnessed by King King Emperor Bradley Kayser Chief II (laughs) himself. Uh, in which we are again shown his stupid sword anime as hell powers. No, again. we are not, because you do not see the sword move. No, you don't see the sword move. You just see the spear that Edward throws, well, attempts to attack him with. Suddenly falls apart. Exactly. A- Edward just goes, when did he draw his sword? Again, I, th- I, I personally think it's too soon to actually reveal this, but hey. Agreed. I mean, it still works as just a little bit of a comedy thing. Yeah. And for the for people who have only seen OG to watch this, I guess in a way it does foreshadow the possible fact that, yes, we acknowledge that you know these things. We acknowledge that you have seen these strange abilities before. Yeah. That you will learn relearn the truth again. But this is small fries to what we are going to be showing you in the future. Oh, fair enough. I never thought of it that way. Yes. Um, can I do this small next bit? Because Edward, of course, passes the exam with flying colors, even though he technically acted like a total terrorist because he attacked the Fuhrer and the exam. Who does that? I mean, seriously. Mm-hmm. It's like tra- stabbing your math teacher because he gave you a test. Um, so... Because he passes, Roy grants him the oh-so-famous silver pocket watch, which is the iconic symbol of the state alchemist. And you will see the symbol on the pocket watch a gazillion times, and you will see the pocket watch in and of itself very, very frequently, at least in all the fan art, because it's a fucking awesome watch, guys. Um, so Roy grants him that silver pocket watch, along with his certificate of appointment, as he calls it. And... The Certificate of Appointment is what grants Edward his title of Fullmetal Alchemist, well, his title of State Alchemist, and his Fullmetal Alchemist name. And Roy explains that every State Alchemist is giving a new identity, a code name, to reflect their abilities. And his code name 
is Full Metal Alchemist. And Edward, being the snotty little brat he is, Full Metal, I like the sound of that, and he thinks he's all that shit. Um, but I just wonder, who's the poor guy who's got to give these guys names? Does he even watch the exams? I mean, seriously, does the guy watch the exams? Maybe. I mean, there were, like, three other guys. Yeah. There were mostly bodyguards. Yeah. Like, who's the guy who names the people? Well, I'd imagine it's, like, just one guy in an office with a thesaurus. And he's just kind of naming people and then crossing out those names so he doesn't reuse them again. <laughs> like, he has a dedicated alchemist thesaurus, like, name thesaurus. So, so he's like, okay, I've used full metal. Crosses it out. He finds another one that's similar. Um, 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 um. Badass! Have we used badass alchemist yet? <laughs> yes! Shit. And it ends with the arrival in Lior. Yes. Which but... is kind of what where the next episode is going to start. That's back in present time. Definitely. So what can be said about this particular episode? It's very obvious that Edward wants Al's body back. It's a clear symbol of guilt. He's constantly talking about Al and fixing Al. Definitely. I think it's not just guilt over losing his brother's body, though. I think it's guilt over that first moment of hesitation over his brother, because he sees that the clothes are empty. It's that first moment of hesitation between, do I choose my brother, or do I go look at what I brought back? And I think he feels incredibly guilty for that. And I think that's going to haunt him forever. I think that's a very subtle read, and I think it's very effective. Um, it's definitely not implied, and I, it wouldn't be uh, vocalized at all. That's not something that he would even admit to himself. Oh, no, he wouldn't. But but then again, he does ask at a later point, do you hate me for what I've done to you? And it's the question that he dreads asking his brother. By all means, Alphonse has every right to be uh, just a teensy bit upset. Yeah, I, a, I just, would just think. Just a little. It's like, I'm going through puberty in a suit of armor, dude! Fuck you! <laughs> but yeah, this is this episode is a far better improvement compared to the checklist that we received Huge in the first episode. But again, it uh, maybe it's because uh, we like at the time of this airing, we've already seen OG, or maybe it's because I don't know we've already sat through it uh, twice now um, but it feels very strangely paced mm-hmm. yes and it does this is a problem that honestly pervade, uh, uh, pervades with the series at least for the first 13 episodes but I think it's also not helped by the fact that during the majority of the flashback until we get to Roy's part of, of the flashback really it's a voiceover by Edward that does the very film noir, you know, when the dame walked into my office, I knew she was trouble. I would actually kind agree of deal. with that. It, I mean, it's obviously not, he's definitely not as snarky. No, and more but, nostalgic. But, but he, yeah, but he still has the kind of attitude of if only we'd known then what we were going to do, kind of Which, deal. again, so... also works with the, I should really stop fumbling with this knife. That is how a lot of Lovecraftian and early 20th century, not early 20th century, but middle 20th century literature was actually written. Detective stories, mystery stories, or horror stories predominantly. That's very true. 
and Always the in the first person. Exactly. Yeah. In the first person and very much in the retrospective. In the majority of very true. Lovecraft's work, it often starts with a... Well, there was this tradition of writing past tense at the time. Definitely. Um, one thing that I find interesting as well is, just as you mentioned, that um, the, the voiceover simulates the writing of the early to mid-20th century. Um, a lot of the setting kind of implies that we're early to mid-20th century. If you look at the modes of transportation, the trains are still working with steam. We don't have any electrical trains and none of that going on. And I think that that's particularly important because you've got this setting that's clearly turn of the century, early 20th century, um, at the latest, mid-20th century, and the kids are wearing jeans, layered t-shirts, and polos. Exactly. Uh, what? what? <laughs> yeah, no, that that is also very strange. Oh, and cargo pants. They weren't a thing till the Vietnam War. Well, like, in a sense, I mean, in... This, if there's one thing that stylistically this anime has always been known for, it's its use of cultural anachronism in the midst of fantasy. Or fantastical anachronism in the face of early 20th century settings. I guess. But I mean, there's... I, I would say that's not the only contradiction we see, because if you look at the actual animation of the characters, it's very fluid and very strong anime lines mm -hmm. um, with a solid coloration. But if you look at the backgrounds, they look like they're drawn in pastels and kind of vague and the lines aren't particularly straight. I think it's a stylistic choice. Possibly. I mean, I think it's got, at that point, it's got to be. <laughs> yes. um, but here's an example, actually. I have an example for you. Uh, I will read for your pleasure or for our reader's pleasure. <laughs> uh, of the first paragraph, or the first couple of sentences of The Call of Cthulhu. Um, that is actually fairly similar to Edward Alric's uh, dialogue here. It reads, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of a human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piercing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality, and our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee, from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. It fucking describes the truth. Exactly. But it also kind of describes what the truth says. Less what Edward says and more what the truth actually comes Certainly. to tell him. But it also works incredibly well with the theme of forbidden knowledge. Arakawa-san, we... did you read that? Seriously, I'd like to talk to her. I, I honestly think that Full Metal Alchemist does cover this subtly and more effectively than most Lovecraftian horror in anime. Fair enough. But seriously, if Arakawa-san is listening to this, I want her autograph. Yes. We, we would both like her autograph. That, that would be great. Thanks. Th thank you. But thanks for listening. We love you! <laughs>
Yes. とても大好きです。What she said. Somehow I'm the localizer and she knows Japanese. And German. And French. Stop making me look bad. And a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of Italian and some Russian. Again, you're not helping. <laughs> Moving on to episode three. <laughs> so we open to the third episode City of Heresy. With a sermon. The Elrics arrive and introduce themselves in proper fashion and in the proper, I guess, tradition by breaking the town folks. Actually,、things. no, not quite. They sit at the pub and the pub owner goes, Are you guys street performers? Which, for some ha- reason, is always the assumption, given that Edward wears gloves and a fancy red coat, and Alphonse is a fucking walking suit of armor. That's true. But anyway, they break the radio. They repair the damages. And the with effer- alchemy. With alchemy. And the aforementioned townsfolk assume that our heroes are touched by an angel, or more especially, or specifically, a sun god. Leto. Leto. Leto Atreides, apparently. They worship、uh, the Atreides family.、Uh, somehow the、uh, god emperor has、uh, transitioned between literature into anime itself. <laughs> The spice must flow. Yes, we'll, we'll stick with that. that. That's the reason why they have alchemy, guys, confirmed. Yep.、Um, one of the things after、um, they hear that they're touched by the sun god Letho, like, the reaction is What?、Yeah. No, we're alchemists. And immediately, for some reason, these people in Lior who don't have alchemy know exactly who Edward Elric is. They're like, Oh, I've heard of you. You're the full metal alchemist. What? How、yeah. do they know this? They do not have alchemy, which is proven by the fact that nobody suspects the prophet of using alchemy. Exactly. They think he does real miracles. So I think it's important that they don't know what alchemy is, or haven't seen it used, but they know who the full metal alchemist is. There's something not jibing for me there. And then again, they're confusing the walking suit of armor for the full metal alchemist. And there's this very comical comic book moment again where Edward just stands still with this really stupid smile on his face while Alphonse in the background is drowned by a crowd of people admiring him. And then Edward gets very angry, popping vain, and again screams that the name belongs to him. He is the full metal alchemist, and people call him short. Never a good thing to do. So, to specify one thing, a、uh, major characteristic of Lior itself, it is a theocracy. It's run by a man named Father, Father Cornello,、um, or I personally like to call him Cornetto.、Yeah. Uh, seemingly. It's funny because they live in a desert. Yes, exactly. Seemingly. He seemingly revived the town. Because、um, it's in a desert. Yes, because it's a desert, because people somehow. Well, I, get, I guess, like, pastoral societies in the past have survived in deserts and so on and so forth, but we can、mm. get into that. So he, he brings the town back to life with miracles. Big quotes around the word miracles, guys. Exactly. There's a massive public demonstration in which he creates a massive monument. And he does these miracle shows regularly. I mean, seriously, the guy masturbates with cheers from the crowd.、It's、Who wants、uh, to be saved? Very much so. Exactly. 
Uh, if you want to make a donation to the uh, church <laughs> of, of, the uh, of the sun god Leto, please send your money. Okay. Yeah, no, pretty much. That is very much what's going on there. Um, and, like, people will say that that's not alchemy that he's doing. You do get a clear shot of him wearing a suspicious-looking red stone on his ring, and we are And we are told that it is suspicious by its zooming in. Yep. Yes, very obviously. Um, so we cut to the brothers and a church, rearing up a girl who is praying to an altar. Rose, a Leto groupie. <laughs> Ed, Sco- Ed scorns Rose, reading out the recipe for human cake. Kind of makes him the dick, if you think about it. You approach a girl who's praying and go, Hey dude, wanna hear how to make a human cake? Like, no, you just don't do that. Exactly. He outlines the beliefs of alchemists, or at least his perceptions on the beliefs of alchemists, as compared to, um, I guess, magi or wise men high on their hubris, really. He implies that somehow it is entirely atheistic. and the con- he, pro- he does proclaim in- that it is a science versus a religion or the prophet, Carnello, because they keep mentioning he's a prophet. Yeah. Um... There's a fun moment when Ed approaches Rose in the church, though, because he reads that uh, human cake recipe to her, and they kind of have this argument about religion versus science going on. Rose quotes scriptures at Edward, Edward quotes scientific facts back at her, and they just get into a fight over it, and it gets interrupted with the arrogance of alchemists being brought up. Rose calls the alchemists arrogant, but then Edward agrees. He says, yes, we're playing God. This reminds me of the story of someone who made wings out of wax and got too close to the sun. When they melted, he came crashing down. For those who don't know, that's Icarus' story, which I don't know where these kids learned this story, but anyway. Yeah, because Greece apparently exists. Yep. But Rose has a really funny little moment there where she goes I'm sure if you pray to the sun god Leto he will make you taller and (laughs) Edward of course freaks out about the short joke but I find that bit very amusing personally. Definitely. So uh, he so Ed asks for an audience with Father Cornetto to save a poor sinner he suddenly completely changes tactic from um, quoting science. He goes oh you know what can Father Cornetto Father Cornello, please save a poor sinner like myself. Exactly. So, Father Cornetto gets word of the brothers and villain expositions all over the place. With more dog analogies. Of course. And refers to ominous plans. Maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh. And oh my god, are the plans terrible. Oh yes. Well, I mean, it's pretty much every heavy-handed... Manipulative. We will take over because religion. Well, it's we will take over because people are dumb and will follow religion. Yeah, true enough. Yes. Um, and he sends Minion to threaten the Elrics with a gun. Exactly. So they're led into a deep, dark cave in which the Minion pulls the gun to assassinate the brothers. The brothers, um, obviously survive and. Ba, 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 na, na, na. Minion. Right. I. I... Despicable Me Minion. I've never seen Despicable Me. <gasps> Shock. Okay. I don't plan to. Oh, you could see the first one. 
Come on. I was on the ride. One point in Universal Studios. There's a ride. There's a ride. It was underwhelming. I can imagine. Just a little. I don't see how the... Whatever. Anyway, anyway brothers meet Cornetto. And, uh... Ed Cornetto. Cornetto. Uh, and Ed attempts to expose the priest. He reveals that Cornetto is in possession. If Edward waited long enough, he's a young boy, the priest would have exposed himself. That is true. <laughs> But regardless, Cornetto, <laughs> he exposes Cornetto in, in having <laughs> in having the Philosopher's Stone. Cornetto orders Rose to shoot uh, Edward. And while she does have a crisis of faith, attempts to shoot Edward's little brother. And there's a super brief exposition about uh, when... Cornello calls himself the chosen emissary of God. Rose decides to listen to Cornello over, you know, Edward being kind of reasonable here. Yeah. With, um, yeah, but he promised to bring my dead boyfriend back. And it's like, okay, thanks, bye. Like, yeah. It's really, really quickly glossed over why she's doing this. And again, Alphonse is exposed for our pleasure. Yes. We then get a brief, a brief uh, chimera fight. Well, just before that, though. When Al's head gets shot off and the empty armor is revealed, Rose freaks out. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the room, except of course Al themselves, think it's heresy. And Cornello says that it clearly proves his point. That they are heretics, not human. That they have delved into dark arts. So it's interesting that it hinges on that because when we get to Ishval, alchemy is a dark art. Well, I mean, clearly, Lior, being a desert town, it's most probably in close relation to Ishval. They do have a similar skin tone. Similar skin tone, similar ecosystem. Uh, definitely east of the eastern center. It's Yes, it's it, all very eastern. Well, Middle Eastern. Well, it, yeah. East of Amestris is what I meant. Yes. Which Amestris is essentially... Europe analog or German analog. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to it, it is very obvious that Lior is in close proximity. Mm-hmm. Um so it's I guess we can imply that their lacking in alchemy is reasonable in this in that sense in which their social structure or their society was lenient further lenient to the Ishvalan faith well and that's the thing like every city we meet to the east before the desert that leads into Shing so everything after east city the really eastern part so around Ishval around Lior they're all theocracies. They're all ruled by religion. Ishval was a religious, um, a religious society. Lior was a religious society, and none of them had alchemy. So religion and alchemy don't seem to really. Anyway, so they fight the chimera. Yes. Yes, chimera is chimera. We again, they they discover Edward Elric, well, Edward's arm and leg being auto male. Ed seems kind of proud of his auto male in this one. Just a bit. He, I, I personally think that he overcompensates with pride. 
involving his auto mail. Quite possibly. Uh, Cornetto puts two and two together. And again, okay. this is where we get the entire exposition. Of, this is what bothers me. Why does everybody immediately put two and two together? Like, why does nobody think, okay, so you lost your arm and leg in a war. Maybe it's just your brother who tried human transmutation. No, no, no. Immediately everybody knows. Both of them tried it. And it's like, Cornetto, uh, Cornello, is not even a... It's catching on. Yes, it is. He's not even a particularly good alchemist. At the end of the episode, he says that without the stone, he can't do shit. Yeah. So he's not a gifted alchemist. How the fuck does he know that these boys tried human transmutation and that was the price of their sin? Quote, unquote, price of their sin for playing God. Plot. Plot, 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 plot. Plotty plot is plotty. Exactly. So, yes, they're exposed and we hit parable territory. Uh, Edward explains why he partic- why he has his stance pertaining to both religion and playing God. Uh, his reasoning for approaching her in the church to begin with and to challenge her in the church as well. They escape as Cornetto attempts to chain gun at them. But just before that, one of the lines that I find particularly poignant is when Cornello says, I'll give you a moment to pray because he wants to kill them. And Edward says, me and God don't get along too well. I think that's a very interesting line. That works incredibly well, especially towards his character. Towards his character and towards Mr. Truth? Yes, just a bit. So a chase scene ensues uh, where we have some good-natured fun. They escape with Rose. Alphonse and Rose find themselves on the bell tower in which they uh, discuss the current situation. Alphonse exposits what we learn what we learned in the past episode. If anything, yes, it hammers in the theme of the epi- of their failures and the emotional fallout, the stigma that follows them. Also, somebody needs needs to kid. Also, somebody needs to teach that kid stranger danger. Just a little. He doesn't know who Rose is, and he fucking tells her everything. We just wanted to see her mom smile again. He explains what happened. He tells her what her bro- what his brother did. She doesn't know them. She doesn't need to know this. You don't even know that she wants to know this shit. She just wants to get out of this shit situation. And she wants her dead boyfriend back. Yeah, well, those really, are two priorities. Really badly, to the yeah. point where she's willing to shoot an invisible child in a suit of armor for it. Yep. Uh, so they have a nice little quiet ro- uh, moment where we go over the brother's raison d'être. Yes. Despite Alphonse's story, Rose argues back. Just because they failed doesn't mean that our good holy man won't. Ed confronts Cornetto um, and tricks him into villain speeching all over a microphone. Well, and his ridiculous plan to take over with a religious fanatical mindless army is told at this plan. And my notes here say, devious plan is devious. And the villain gets a case of the shiny evil eyes. Yeah, um, we get an anime tropey evil face. Um... Now, also an interesting thing to mention is that the way Edward convinces Cornello to talk before Cornello notices the uh, hidden microphone, um, Edward actually threatens Cornello with the military. Yeah, in which he can call down the Amestrian military for uh, military forces. So, Cornetto is forced to oblige. 
They and <laughs> he's not just forced to oblige. I mean, he reminds me of Tanatoa and Moana. Like, he's seconds away from going, I will happily tell you my plan in some form. I mean, seriously. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> um, he is very hammy. It's almost painful. He's kind of happy to tell someone his devious plan who's not his minion. Honestly, it sounds as if... The poor guy was just lonely, people. Just a little. I mean, I guess it's lonely at the top of a power-hungry theocracy. In the middle of the desert with fountains of wine. Evil Pope? <laughs> evil Desert Pope. Isn't the Pope generally evil? Uh, I've heard good reviews on this one. The new on, one. On, on the current one, yeah. yeah. Benedict was... Uh, Cumberbatch. What? <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> Leave me to my thoughts, Sherlock. So... Yes, Cornetto is exposed into the micro uh, into the microphone that broadca- broadcasts his evil villainy speech all over the town into every ear of his possible uh, followers. This breaks Rose entirely. They fight. Cornetto gets backfire in which um, he just kind of melds his arm melds into his it's a rebound broken yeah he, yeah. he rebounds and he he, he kind of gets some bioorganic uh virus goodness happening to his arm in which uh his walking stick melds in and we get some cool little like action figure it kind of looks like tar and a gun mixed to an arm yeah exactly uh he becomes uh 90s action figure man. <laughs> 90s action figure that a kid has put in the oven, but yeah. Pretty much, I mean he 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 become he also grows quite a bit becoming Cornzilla. Uh <laughs> saying something roughly akin the to The almighty fist of judgment. Exactly. He he calls his fist of judgment and he te- and he points it at uh Edward. And any priest attempting to use a fist on, of judgment onto a 15-year-old should uh, probably be arrested as soon as humanly possible. Yes, children. If ever your priest tells you he's coming at you with the fist of judgment, run for the hills and tell an adult. So the stone dissipates after the fight and co- as well as Cornetto's self-respect. Well, it doesn't just dissipate. It falls out of the ring, cracks on the floor, which is the first thing to shock Edward. The stone can crack. Then it crumbles to dust and disappears. So the brothers are sad, readying to move on after the events. We don't really get that much of a idea of how the town is doing, but we will see them in the future. Yes. Cornetto right. does beg to be spared because exactly. he's a fucking coward. As soon as the stone is destroyed, he is groveling. You know what he reminds me of? Pokey mm-hmm. from Earthbound. No idea what you're talking about, darling. I'm sorry. Earthbound is a uh, Super Nintendo game um, produced by Shigesato Itoi. It's a very quirky uh, bit of a Japanese-influenced Americana or Americana-influenced Japanese RPG-ness mm. in which there's this one character who is literally the fat boy next door who pretends to be your friend and then acts and then subtly manipulates, lies, cheats... And be- works his way up the ranks of evilness throughout the game. Mm. But he is absolutely the same brand of villain. Yes, but it's not so much the brand of villain that I'm talking about. It's the fact that the man is a fucking coward without that stone. Definitely. 
Like, the only reason why he got anywhere in the first place was because he had the stone. The reason why I mentioned Pokey himself is because of his tangential relationship with the the villain Gygas. Of which the only reason why he has his self-confidence or why he has his destructive ego that influences his villainy is because he has Gygas's power backing him. Another Lovecraftian influence backing a seeming personality type. I, I just found it fairly interesting how similar the two characters were, uh, viewers of Brotherhood, if you have played Earthbound. And Correct me if you, I'm wrong. <laughs> and those of you who are like me and don't really play video games, I know, big shocker for me. But, uh, yeah, just nod and smile. Um, <laughs> after after Cornetto begs to be spared, we actually cut to the boys leaving, and Rose picks up the gun again. She's going to turn into some homicidal maniac eventually. And attempts to mug them. She attempts to mug them, asks for the stone, and the boys say the stone disappeared. We're sorry. And she goes, you guys are lying, you want it for yourself. Which is kind of hypocritical, because she wants it for herself, too. And then comes the iconic line. That also appears in OG. You've got two legs. Two good legs. Stand up and use them. Which, I mean, she clearly has a lot of trauma. I, I, I'm not quite sure if walking them off will do anything. No, but it, it makes sense what he says because she collapses in tears and asks, what am I going to do now? Yeah. I've got no one left. What am I going to do? The only and thing just you can because do is she's alone is to move on. Yes. And I think that that's what he means with the two good legs. I oh, think certainly. it's just in just... order to, you know, play it in with the fact that he only has one good leg. So after her initial breakdown, our heroes move on. Leor is up in arms. A certain lusty lady kills Cornetto as Cornetto rages at them. She kill fingers him. She seemingly has a very unnatural spear-like finger that pierces his throat. Spear-like middle finger? Wouldn't you want that too? I mean, seriously, if I could do a fuck you that was the size of, like, 12 feet, that would be really cool. Oh yes, that can stab people. Stabity middle finger is best middle finger. I would totally love that in traffic, guys. Seriously, think about it. And Gluttony eats the body. Yes, but Gluttony asks first. They usually, can I eat him? Yep. Kind of voice. And then before he goes om nom nom, you see his big lolling town come out, tongue come out, and the Urboros is clearly seen. So you see that it's not just Lust who enjoys her sexy tattoos mid-chest, it's a repeating symbol. Certainly, at least between these characters. Yeah. The conspiracy continues. The plot with, thickens. The plot thickens, with Lust ending the episode with a single line, Father won't be pleased. Yes. All right. Who's your daddy? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, thoughts, ideas, reactions. A lot of these concepts, ideas have been already covered in OG, and it feel. And of course, we're getting a better. Uh, we're getting a sense of very quickened pace. Um, a highly quickened pace, uh, in a sense in which the showrunners clearly have an idea that the audiences have already seen this 
or at least are familiar with the characters, if they haven't seen the entirety of of uh, OG, they've seen a little bit of it and enough of it to warrant the speed of the exposition. Exactly. Um, as we mentioned before, it, I would honestly skip the first episode um, between the three and even possibly the second. Yes, but no. There's some bits in the second that I think or are even important. or or even use the second at a later date. Like you have some yeah, kind of hatchet. Yeah, you could watch it out of order and it could work. Like starting at Lior is definitely a good idea because that's where OG starts and it's kind of in media res. Yes. God knows that an in media res start is better than a start at the flashback, which is kind of what they tried doing with that first episode, but it was such an ex. Uh, an expository episode that it did not feel in media res. No, it really didn't. Um, while it is still an effective way of telling its story, I would honestly say that it could have been impl- the pacing just felt way too quick. Mm. In which the emotional resonance is completely lost. But that I could still handle for the first couple of episodes. No, that's... Because, you know, as with every show, it's like, don't stop watching after the first episode. Give it three or four. Give it three or four, yes. But we're already but, on episode three. Yes. But in episode two and three, we start seeing some emo- emotional hues that are interesting. Definitely. Um... What I think gets told too fast is certain details, uh, certain plot twists that are either hinted at too strongly, or certain key elements that I think are so brilliant and should be saved for later that aren't being saved for later. They're just served to you right away, and it's that's where my disappointment from those first couple of episodes stems from. I wish it was peppered throughout the story rather than all handed to you right away, because... Some of these moments deserve more screen time and deserve a good amount of time dedicated to them, and they don't get what they deserve in that episode. Certainly, uh, especially in Lior, uh, one of the more striking uh, elements, at least in OG. And in OG, it's a two-parter. Exactly, is the church scene, which is I get honestly a microcosm with my uh, with my particular problem. Um, I won't really talk about OG since we're doing that next season, in which we are actually going to be probably doing a comparison of Brotherhood right, no, Just talk about OG because it's awesome. Yes, it is awesome. Uh, don't hate us, uh, yes. listeners. Yes, all the haters out there, we have a good reason. So, Getting back to it, the church scene uh, in which Edward reads out the human cake ingredients list it feels fairly weak in the sense in which its gravitas is downplayed by the imposing of manga humor in the situation technically yes i think that the manga humor there actually kind of breaks down rose's character it makes her stupider it makes her dumber definitely but it does not there is only one reason why it does not undercut the gravitas of that scene of that reading and it's because in the previous episode we've already gotten that reading that is true and there it had a lot of gravitas with ominous evil devil crows 
Yes. Who quaffed nevermore all over the place. Um, but yeah, like with that red glow and the ominous music, you, you get that same reading of that recipe. And this one precedes the Lior scene. Whereas it's the other way around in OG. Yes, definitely. Again, it it works in the context of this series, but at the same time, it does pay a bit of a disservice to some of the characters involved. Yes. Because of that manga because of that manga humor. Needless to say though, they are enjoyable. Yes, but I think it what I think the problem is is not so much that it it doesn't so much undercut the gravitas of the words so much as we're entering into the serious part of the series. We've had comedy, comedy, comedy at the beginning of this episode. We're starting to get out of that comedy bit. Yes, we will be getting out of that comedy bit. But it's not the part in the church that bothers me the most. The part where they're escaping Carnella. Yes. Because they're running away with flailing arms and, you know, kind of chibi, choppy animation going on with, like, we kick almost like a Looney Tunes-esque. Yeah, very, very of. much a Looney Tunes-esque escape. And that, for me, breaks down the whole thing of, okay, we just got shot at with guns, let's escape. Why does it look funny? Because they're too good for this theocratic shit? Yeah, okay. I guess. But, ne- but regardless, as I was saying, just because we're critically taking these episodes apart does not mean that we did not enjoy watching them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I absolutely love any episode that contains Roy, so don't worry. I like these episodes. Now, in terms of... Now that we've gone through the negatives, the positives there are also fairly present. I mean, the animation is stellar. It's beautiful. Um, definitely a step up from the early 2000s animated style. It's a different animated style. In terms of its frame rate and technical ability. Yes, absolutely. Um, there, it's and Roy remains sexy, which is, you know, the most important thing of all. The actual action is very enjoyable. It's a very kinetic series. Mm-hmm. And what dialogue, while some dialogue does come off as wonky, it's localization and... And I think it does kind of fix itself it over does, time. It does fix itself over time. And I think that and the it fact is that we not did a really close reading. Yeah. Yeah. Like, on a first watch through, the first time I saw Film at Alchemist Brotherhood wasn't distracting at all. On the second time, wasn't distracting either. But this time, actually, you know, listening, taking notes, pausing it, suddenly you start to notice things. So at the end of the, each episode, I like to um, kind of wanted to do is a serious and non-serious line of the episode, kind of our personal picks. Yeah. Narya, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. Um, my favorite serious line in the series of three episodes we've just had was, of course, a line b- belonging to Roy, not on purpose though. Um, and it's, there was fire in those eyes. And that emphasis on the word fire from the flame alchemist, I think that's one hell of a compliment, guys. And as a comedic line, 
subatomic shrimp. I mean, that's just a great insult for short people. Definitely. Um, so mine are rather different. One is Mustang related as well. The other, however, again, going back to my Lovecraftian-esque fanboyness, is a line of dialogue by The Truth, in which he states, or they state, It states? We'll go with they. Okay. Multiple voices. Mm, True enough. There you go. Gender neutral. I don't want to uh, assume it's uh, what he or she might be. But that's what I'm saying, it. Because it's an entity. It's an entity. It's not... But it does... It is greater than anything. It is greater than anything, but it does have its own agency. It would still be an it. I suppose, but it, it implies that it's an object. Because it's the universe. But is the object... Is, is the universe really an object? Kind because, of. I suppose. I mean, it has its own consciousness. The second you call it a... It has a consciousness... Uh, we don't it, fucking know if the universe has a consciousness. We still call it an it. I, I suppose. We don't call the universe a they. Well, I mean, it's not particularly the universe. It's an entity within the universe that... Or maybe it is the universe. We don't know. It doesn't know. It tells you the name it's being called. That is true. It doesn't tell you what it is. Exactly, and that is getting back to the line. It reads, I am... The one that I am called by many names. I am the world. I am the universe. I am God. I am the truth. I am all. I am one. I am you. It simply is. Which I feel is... Cogito ergo sum? Just a little. And I my... think therefore I am. Yep, Definitely. And my non-serious line is, How do you like my flames now, bastard? As he's blowing away walls of ice. Um, Here we see Mustang losing his chill. But not that much, because it's very hard for this man to lose his cool. Well, I mean, McDougal did get him wet. It got personal once Mustang got wet. It would get personal with me if Mustang got me wet. Anyway, so that is the... <laughs> so those are the last three episodes. Um, skip the first one if you can, but if you want a good microcosm for it, try it out. Yeah, if you're um, familiar with the series, I recommend the first episode. If you're not, and you don't want any spoilers, start at the second. Definitely. I mean, in a sense, you can actually just see the first episode as a little one-off pilot. Yeah. Like a small microcosm of the first 13 episodes right then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, uh, again, like I want to highlight, just because we're doing a close reading and just because most of what we've said here in this podcast is negative does not impact our enjoyment of these episodes, too. They can be bad, but we're also kind of enjoying the badness. They're actually so good. If you don't do a close read like we just did, that um, you have no idea how many Full Metal Alchemist DVDs I own. I have thrown all my money at this. I refuse to download a single thing illegally. And I'm not normally a weeaboo. Um, Alex can confirm. I do not have 
any other enemy on my shelves but Full Metal Alchemist. I think it's the fact also that we're doing such a close reading. Yeah, it really that... is. It's keeping your nose so close that exactly. the flaws come out. And the series does deserve such a close reading because of the written depth that is present. That it's, is not normally... It's uh, so fucking good that you have to find and pick up the flaws. Definitely. And... Because otherwise we feel so incompetent as authors, we just want to find a hole and die in it. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. The, this series does make us both of us look bad. You haven't read my stuff! Shut up! You've read mine. Either way, so... Yes, that is our first episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, if you want, um, if you want to contact us, you can find us at that um, that podcast on Twitter, or you can send us an email at that podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we look forward to your replies, and we will see. This is Alex and Naria signing off.